Hello and welcome to Time in the Market, an Invesco podcast series for UK professional investors. I'm Ben Gutteridge, your host, a failed TV celebrity desperate for a bit of attention, but also an investment director from within Invesco's multi-asset strategies division. In this series, we'll be interviewing some of the highest profile names from in and around the financial industry and from both within and without Invesco. But before the action begins, we want to stress this interview should not be considered as investment advice and remind you that any capital invested is always capital at risk. Finally, we would encourage you to listen to some further important information immediately following the interview. Thank you and on with the show. Hello, everyone, and a very warm welcome to the latest and extra special time in the market podcast as we host one of the UK's favourite and most recognised podcasters. Uh, and also on the side, I believe he does a bit of bond fund management as well. It's M&G's head of fixed income, Jim Levis. Jim, a thrill to have you on the show. How are you doing? Good. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. I'm fine. And you say good, but I do know that you're recovering from a shoulder operation, aren't you? So uh, how's that recovery going? It's holding back my ability to lift really heavy weights in the gym. That's the only thing that's uh, that makes me angry at the moment. So I need to I need to I need to get back in the gym. Well, I could well understand having met you in person. What a, what a frustration that must be. And good to hear look, that you're recovering. You're 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 braving your recovery to join us. And look, before we get going, as a keen podcaster myself, congratulations on the success of you know, Uncle Jim's World of Bonds, a show I really enjoy, regularly listen to. And it's in it's in its eleventh season, I believe. You know, what, what's your secret, Jim? Well, apparently Friends only had 10 seasons. So, I, I, I mean, I could give them some hints on what they could have done to keep the format fresh and, and going. But I think that the reason it works for me is that there's never a dull moment in Bonds. People have always thought of Bonds as, you know, when I started in, in, in markets back in the 90s, they were an unloved, you know, the poor orphan child of markets that nobody cared about. And actually, my old boss, Theo Zemek, realised back in the 90s that actually they were the most fascinating bit of everything that goes on in in markets, whether you were interested in demographics or geopolitics, inflation, all the fun stuff was happening here where everyone else was just uh, listening to boring earnings calls or, or on equities. So this is where the action is. And that's why people care about Uncle Jim's World of Bonds, I think. Plus, it's got a brilliant soundtrack, hip hop soundtrack that um, that keeps people coming back for more. That was definitely one of the hooks was the uh, the soundtrack. I do 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 enjoy that. But I would agree, you know, Bond's very much more that much more the centerpiece of uh, of an investment narrative these days. Hence why your podcast is a success and hence why we've uh, invited uh, a guest of your stature onto this show. But look, in, in a moment, and in fact, you know, I'd recommend everyone listen to Uncle Jim's World of Bonds uh, once they've consumed the back catalogue of this podcast, of course. But returning to this episode, in a moment, we're going to have this sort of more, much more macro conversation where I'll quiz Jim on his thoughts on inflation, growth and what it might mean for policy and bond markets, currency markets, all of that good stuff. But before that, we start with our sort of usual prefer or defer round, which is sort of 10 closed questions to learn more about Jim as an investor and a, a person. Uh, so you, you keen for that, Jim? Yeah, up for it. OK, great. Well, a reminder, you tell us which one of these you prefer or if it really is too tricky, you can defer. Right, let's go. Equities or bonds? Bonds at the moment. Yields are higher on bonds than they are on equities. Long dated or short dated bonds? Long dated because you're going to get some capital gain there if uh, if yields fall. 
Right, just, just, just one answer. We can expand on this later, Jim. Don't worry. Uh, gilts or emerging market debt? Emerging markets. Investment grade or high yield? Investment grade. Dollar or sterling? Um, dollar. Bailey or Powell? If, uh, Research or media? Media. Richard Woolner or Brian Clough? Sorry, Wooly, but it's going to be Clough. I don't have a, I don't have a, I don't have a Richard Walno spitting image puppet. I do have a Brian Clough spitting image puppet. The Bond Vigilantes or the Smiths? Ah, uh, Smiths. Uh, cycling or a two five ten duration neutral butterfly curve spread? Uh, the curve spread every time. Every time. Great. Well, look, I think we learned a lot about you there, Jim. I feel, feel like you had to offer some explanation. So, uh, you know, I appreciate that. Well done for being such a good sport. And I'm sure we'll expand on uh, on some of that through this conversation. We will now, as our heart rate settles, sort of pivot to the main event. And uh, look, we'll start in the UK. And we had that sort of lower and, and therefore better than expected inflation print last week, but still, you know, very elevated versus target. You know, what's kept the UK inflation print so high and why do you think policies not had more of an impact? Yeah, that's the the, the trillion dollar question, isn't it? What, why have given all we've thrown at the economy globally in terms of monetary policy? Why hasn't it had more of an impact on inflation? And one answer might be that just wait and see what that impact will be, because maybe we're not understanding how long the lags are between the 5% or so of rate hikes we've seen and that feeding through into inflation. And reasons you could give for that are the amount of fixed rate debt and the fact that, you know, you need to see that reset before the transmission mechanism really starts to work. But I think, it, you know, there are some other fundamental reasons going on that in the UK, we are an economy that hasn't had real wage rises for a very, very long time. And, you know, you only have to look at doctors, junior doctors, their pay stagnant by something like 35 percent in real terms over the past couple of decades. And so there is an argument that the starting point for the UK on the wage front was incredibly low. You know, there'd been too much wage accommodation by the workers and that capital had done well relative to labour. Suddenly you have Brexit and all those workers disappearing. You have the pent up stuff from COVID as well and people leaving the workforce there and workers suddenly regain the upper hand in that negotiation between labour and capital. And I think that's one of the things. If you ask the Bank of England, they are looking at three things at the moment. They're looking at service sector inflation. That has started to come down. They're looking at labour market tightness and the unemployment rate has started to go up. So we're up from about three and a half to nearly four and a half now. But they are also looking at private sector wage growth. And that one is the highest it's ever been outside of you know, the, the extremes of COVID lockdown. So we're not out of the woods yet, I don't think. Yeah, I mean, you certainly say we're not out of the woods. It's certainly on that wage number seems odd that or that number alone that the Bank of England would be sort of taking a pause on hiking rates, obviously reflecting on the weakness they're sort of seeing in the UK economy and uh, I guess the sort of housing and maybe creeping uh, weakness in the in the labour market. But I mean, do you think the Bank of England has sort of largely signalled it's it's done now on, on hiking? Now we're now on sort of an extended pause or do you think there's a window open for, for more hikes or, or sooner than anticipated cuts? Yeah, I think history shows you if you look back at all the rate hiking cycles, there is a narrative emerging in bond markets at the moment globally that we're going to go into what people describe as a kind of table mountain view of rates. So that's um, rates going up and staying elevated and high 
for a long time before they come down. Now, that would be incredibly rare historically. So that doesn't normally happen. Normally, what happens is central banks hike, realise they've hiked too much and then cut. And so that still, I think if you're an investor in these markets, that still should be your kind of core expectation of what happens. You know, we bumble around at these kind of levels for a few months, but after that, we get some aggressive rate cuts. So that's what I think will probably happen this time around. Having said that, if you want the explanation as to why we might get the table mountain view, it would be, I guess, a, a more US view that we're going to get a soft landing. And, you know, this is the same story. Soft landings are incredibly rare historically. We don't normally get a slowdown in inflation without a big rise in unemployment. And so, again, if you believe that rates are going to stay high at these levels for a, a, a medium, you know, sort of duration period of time, then you have to believe in that soft landing story. And that would be really, really quite unusual in history. Maybe revealing some of your investment views in that answer then. So thinking about the UK government bond market, maybe rate cuts aren't quite so far away. And does that suggest you think there could be some pretty good value in that part of the market? Yeah, I think I think there is value in, in bond markets globally at the moment, in government bond markets globally. Most people in bond markets read Jim Reed every day, uh, Deutsche Bank strategist, and he does a kind of chart periodically of chart of the week or something. And one of them recently was looking at when is the time to buy bonds, whether that's gilts or treasuries or whatever. And history shows you that you should be not owning bonds. It's kind of common sense, really. But as rates go up, don't buy government bonds. They're going to underperform. But once that peak of interest rates is in, bonds, normally government bonds, 10-year government bonds, their yields fall by about 1%, about 100 basis points over the course of the next three months. So if we were able as bond investors to know definitively that uh, the Bank of England is now done, that the ECB is now done, and that the Fed is probably done or 25 basis points away from done, you know, by the end of the year, they'll be done, presumably. If, If we knew that for sure, then now is the time you're buying government bonds and you're you're expecting a 100 basis point rally in, in, in government bonds from here. That sort of gives rise to the question as to whether like central banks are done. And maybe we sort of pivot to the to the US now where I guess there's always sort of reflation or, or uh, reacceleration inflation risks everywhere. But, you know, with energy markets sort of uh, moving in the direction that they're moving, and with the jobs market so strong and, you know, it was like a recession now soft landing narrative. And then you've got to sort of think about, well, actually, maybe, you know, you've got sort of quite a quite a hot economy and you could have reacceleration and you could have yet more rate hikes. Sorry, I don't mean to sort of lay out the argument for everyone. I'd kindly ask you to do that about what are the risks that the Fed might might start going again? And do you think those risks are material? I think the thing that worries me for next year in particular is that Rishi Sunak, for instance, pledged his reputation on inflation halving from 10 to 5 over the course of 2023. That was a, a fairly easy bet to win, although although it's turning out it may not be uh, entirely, you know, it may be touch and go. But we all knew just because of base effects where the oil price was in 2022, that, you know, the oil price would have to have gone up dramatically over the course of 2023 just to keep inflation at those elevated levels. 
So simply base effects, comparing where you were a year ago in prices to where you are now, doesn't mean that things aren't expensive still, but the rate of inflation was always going to be falling aggressively this year, just simply because food prices and energy prices in 2022 went up so much. My worry is that next year, 2024, we're going to start feeling those base effects in the other direction. So, you know, the, the oil prices you alluded to is up from what, $67 a barrel to 90 something dollars a barrel since June. That's a you know 33% rise in the thing that feeds through into every component of inflation, whether that's food, whether that's uh, taxi fares, airfares, heating your house, whatever it is, that oil price is going to feed through in, in, into all inflation baskets over the course of next year, unless it comes back down aggressively before the year end. And that means that for the first half of 2024, those base effects are going to be working against central banks again. And so whilst core inflation may be coming down and we're going to get some US core inflation data for its kind of PCE measure, which is the Fed's preferred measure later this week, and that will be below 4%, all going in the right direction. Um, the headline numbers may start scaring people again next year. And obviously, if you're a trade union um, or a worker, you care about headline more than you care about core. So that's what worries me and I think might put the cat amongst the pigeons in terms of this end of the, the rate hiking cycle thing coming through. Having said that, I think that we are seeing slowdowns in the real economy. And so we, we will see that impact feeding through into lower inflation more generally. Just look at you know the thing that bond markets have been looking at over the past month or so, has been what you call PMIs, purchasing managers indices. These are these are kind of survey-based measures of, of the economy. They tell you whether their order books are up or down, whether they're paying people more or less, whether they're laying off workers, those kind of indicators. So very sentiment driven, but very highly correlated with future GDP growth. And pretty much everywhere you look around developed markets at the moment, those indicators are flashing red for weaker economic growth rather than uh, green for grow. Okay, so you're sort of thinking about making hay then in the short term, not necessarily, obviously the trending government bonds hasn't been particularly favourable of late, but maybe like between now and year end, before those base effects kick in, as people start to worry about um, growth more and as inflationary trends continue to moderate, that there's sort of a nice window here, do you think, for, for government bonds, but then maybe it could be a bit more problematic next year or, or is it difficult to get too cute on making trades of that nature? I think it's, it's difficult to get too cute but to your first question yes I think it's time to buy some government bonds in our portfolio. I mean last week we bought some 10-year US treasuries at four and a half percent roughly where they are now and I think that's um, something we'll look at. I think that there's another debate about the, the long-term natural rate of interest in the United States and that's probably the the biggest debate at the moment out there economically. We've seen a big rise in the long-term inflation-adjusted rate of interest in the US. So if you look at real yields in the States, they're up at above 2% at the long end at the moment. And that's historically, you know, the past since the GFC, a really attractive rate. And so fundamentally, it looks like there's good value in government bonds and as I say, if, if the rate hiking cycle is at an end, then there's doubly good value in government bonds. 
we haven't really sort of touched on Europe or Japan. I'd be keen to, uh, certainly I know Japan to a degree will march to its own sort of drumbeat, but what are, you, what are you seeing in sort of the European inflationary story? And as a macro investor, you know, where, do you look more to sort of the core European bonds or to the peripheral markets where there's a little more yield? Yeah, I don't think there's a massive amount of value in, in peripheral markets at the moment. They're trading relatively tight to core markets. That's justified to some extent because... I think that whenever Europe's been tested in terms of economic crises, the European Central Bank has ridden to the rescue and, you know, bought those spreads down. Um, it's taken on the gentlemen of the spread of the, as they've been described, people that trade that uh, difference between Italy and Germany or Portugal and France and so forth. And so it, it's always been the wrong thing to do to bet against Europe getting its act together in the end. It always does it slowly, too late and with extreme reluctance. But eventually Germany and the Bundesbank and, and other fiscal conservatives come on board and everything's resolved. Whether that continues forever is is kind of the you know a, a question for the future. But for the time being, you probably shouldn't bet against the ECB stepping in to help the Eurozone economy. But Eurozone growth is going to be weak and they will be particularly vulnerable to a cold winter. And we talked about base effects a little bit earlier. Germany, is, as you know, is very reliant on natural gas for heating. And that natural gas price is, has historically been very reliant on Russian supply, which is constrained. We got away with it last winter because winter was very warm. And with global warming, of course, the chances are we're going to have warmer winters in general. But, you know, global warming doesn't mean the end of uh, volatile weather. And we could have a very, very cold winter and that would be uh, disastrous for prices of natural gas. And, and that will make European growth vulnerable and European inflation vulnerable. But, you know, they do look it looks like following last week's ECB meeting or the week before, I can't remember exactly, that, that they are at the peak or at least going for an extended pause from these levels. And that makes their government bonds start to look attractive. But as, as we speak now, German 10-year bonds are at 281, which is up about seven basis points on the day. And I think that's the highest level for, for over a decade. So people aren't um, sanguine about those risks. I know there's a lot to unpack in the question, but how do you feel about allocating amongst sort of UK government bonds into Europe, US, we'll touch on Japan in a moment, but amongst those sort of major government bond markets, where do you favour investment allocation? I would be long of the US as my first one, the, the higher, the highest outright yields in, in the world, really, the highest real yields, inflation adjusted, the best inflation performance in terms of bringing that down again. I also quite like gilts here, and I think the slowdown in the US economy you mentioned the housing market earlier, but other areas too, uh, means the Bank of England will have space to cut sooner than perhaps other areas. Probably won't cut until the Fed does. And that's a kind of something that people are a bit nervous about. Can central banks go it alone and do things before the Fed, whether that's in emerging markets or not? Or does that put your currency under a lot of pressure? So maybe everyone does have to wait for the Fed to pull the trigger downwards before they move. But fundamentally, UK next. Europe after that. And Japan is the one uh, government bond market where I have no exposure at all. Um, I think, you know, their economy, they're seeing some inflation pressures for the first time in three decades. They're seeing some good growth numbers. 
that supported the Japanese equity market, for instance, and they're trying to exit now from yield curve control. I think we'll probably see a full announcement of the end of yield curve control in the next few months and maybe by the end of next year, an end to zero interest rates as well in Japan. So I think that's the most unattractive government bond market. And I'd rank the others, US first, gilt second, Europe third. That might sort of lead into, you've answered a little bit on Japan there, that might reveal something of a currency view in there as well. Do you think like the yen looks uh, appealing here if that sort of yield curve control, zero interest rate policy is sort of a dead man walking? Yeah, I love the Japanese yen. I think everyone should be going on holiday to Japan. Unlike me, who went on holiday to America and, uh, you know, just just was shocked beyond all recognition how expensive the price level was there. If you look at the price level in Japan now compared to the price level in, in the US and you can go and look in The Economist at their Big Mac index or purchasing power parity, you know, it's it, it's double digits cheap, maybe 20, 30 percent cheap to the United States now. So it's a fundamentally undervalued currency in an economy where you're seeing inflation come back, where you're seeing that currency weakness making the central bank and the government really uncomfortable because they're importing inflation into a society that's relatively old and can't cope with inflation. And so I think that the the decades they've had of zero growth, zero interest rates, zero inflation are coming to an end. And and therefore, the yen could be due a significant rally. But I have felt that way for uh, a good few months now, and it's not it's not going in that direction. Yeah, I mean, I uh, appreciate you sort of conceding that at the end there. I mean, anecdotally, rather than evidence based, I'd, I'd sort of say that quite a few macro traders like the look of the yen for a lot of the reasons that you lay out. But, um, you know, global growth is sort of slowing. Maybe some of the wage element to the to the way the direction of travel for wages isn't entirely encouraging in Japan. Maybe you have to be a little bit more patient there, but you, you still feel pretty um, emphatic about that position. I think the thing that's that's kept it uh, the yen weak is really still this difference in yield between, for instance, US Treasury yields. Look at two year yields there making new highs over the past week, 5.1%. Two year Japanese government bond yields, still effectively. There has been some movement at the long end of the curve. So 10 years have kind of moved out from 25 basis points to 75 basis points. But still the yield differential between Japan and other developed market interest rates is pretty high. So it's going to be, if you want to own the yen, you're going to be dropping a lot of yield effectively. And so I think that Perhaps it's going to be a, another one of these things, a correlated trade with the rally in global bond markets. You need to have those peaks in. You need to have the Fed at a peak before the yen can start to appreciate. So unfortunately, it's, it's a correlated trade with that, I guess, in some in some respects. Great. Thanks. We'll, we'll sort of pivot to emerging markets. I mean, you did under pressure and intense pressure suggest that you at the margin preferred emerging market debt to guilt. So uh, sort of a rare question I, I appreciate but let's explore why you might like emerging market debt or at first like let me pose that like China seems like a bit of a, a horror show at the moment whether it's sort of the piecemeal sort of growth policies that are being laid out from authorities the geopolitics looks as ever very tricky and the, regu- the regulatory backdrop always seems a bit cloudy I mean does a China like a, a weak China story mean that there's uh, headwinds for emerging market debt or does that in itself present opportunities? 
Yeah, I, I don't know whether to revoke my guilt's emerging market answer from earlier because I, I don't know the answer. I, I think emerging markets for me is one where it's a massively under-owned asset class amongst Western in, in investors. You know, I look at debt to GDP levels in developed markets at 100% to 150 to Japan at 250 plus. And I'll, I'll look at the potential growth rates in ancient, old, graying like me, Europe, and think potential growth rates probably going to be about zero and a bit. Whereas for emerging markets, they've got low debt to GDP ratios. They've got strong demographics with strong potential growth rates and they've got natural resources that we know we're going to need all of those things and much more stable governments generally compared to history i mean i'm not saying that that's uh universally true just look at the the coups that we're seeing at the moment in africa so it's not a, a one-way bet uh and central banks in in emerging markets tend to be converging with developed market banks in terms of governance and inflation targeting and stuff so if you were to look dispassionately between developed markets and emerging market bonds and then look at the valuations where emerging market real yields are i don't know four and a half percent rather than two percent in the us or a bit lower than that in in europe the valuation and the prospect prospective returns are good but it is a sentiment driven thing it is correlated with risk assets and i think that at this point in the economic cycle maybe those risk assets are going to come under a little bit of pressure as the global economy slows and china is one of the reasons for that global economy slowing you know i think we're all a bit surprised about china if you'd have asked me on the first of january what we're going to see from growth this year for china in the us i would have said well the us is going to be feeling the weight of all those rate hikes it's seen and growth will be slowing substantially through the years and unemployment will be rising substantially. China, on the other hand, will be reopening and uh, experiencing the same kind of boom that we did when we reopened post-COVID. And in fact, the opposite has happened. The US has done really well despite all the rate hikes and China's done really badly despite the, uh, the, you know, the expected bonanza from the reopening. So, yeah, there is something going on there. Uh, and there's also longer term, China, we talked about general emerging market demographics. China's demographics look, and everything about China looks a bit like Japan in 1989. And so it's possible that China has seen the best already of its potential. And the property market stuff going on, the aging population stuff, and all, all of those things make you worry that Chinese potential growth will keep falling and people are already revising down their 2023 growth expectations from China from six and a half to six to five and a half to five and now you know big investment banks are saying it's going to be four and a bit for the next three years or so so certainly I won't go as far as horror show but a disappointing performance from China maybe that's going to be bad news for some of the emerging markets in the region, you know, places like Vietnam that does manufacturing for as a substitute for China and, and so forth. Maybe it'll be good news for the global economy in some ways. A, a slowing China means that they will be exporting deflation again, over capacity China, pumping out those cheap goods that we, we used to know and love. And uh, maybe we could do with a bit more of those. Well, thanks, Jim. And then sort of to, to, to round out, what's your view on the dollar? Do you think the dollar would be, 
an easy one to finish. What do you think the dollar would be a tailwind or a headwind for emerging markets? And uh, just to, yeah, just to close out on a few comments on the greenback. The dollar is expensive now. It's not super expensive, like the Japanese yen is super cheap. But it's on, you know, if you were to rank all the currencies in the world, it's in the top quartile of expensiveness on pretty much any measure you want to look at. That's been driven by the Fed. Uh, the Fed keeps on raising rates. The economy keeps on being strong. That's what currency investors like, high interest rates and strong growth. And so that's going to carry on being a tailwind for the US dollar until the point that it's not, until that peak of the Fed kicks in. After that, I think the dollar will weaken from there. Uh, we talked about some of the trades we're doing today. We've, we, we've gone back to neutral in the dollar against the, the euro, having been overweight the dollar against the euro. So that's, um, that's something we're doing right now. So, you know, it's expensive, not dramatically expensive, but getting near the end of what, what it can get to. Okay, Jim, well, look, I could really keep going and going and going. <laughs> it's really fascinating stuff, but a better call time. Thanks so much for joining us, especially in the midst of uh, recovery. You know, good luck with that recovery. Good luck with the podcast. Good luck with all the funds that you're sort of overseeing. And of course, good luck with Forrest's push for European qualification. Uh, are you feeling confident about all of those? I, th I think the push is more for finishing fourth from bottom or better. But um, apart from that, I'll, I'll go along with that. <laughs> okay, great stuff, Jim. Yeah, thank you again for joining us. Our biggest thanks, of course, to our listeners. Really appreciate your time. Uh, we do hope you can join us next month for our next Time in the Market podcast. But until then, goodbye. Listeners should be aware of the following investment risks. The value of investments and any income will fluctuate. This may partly be the result of exchange rate fluctuations and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Other important information for listeners. This podcast is intended for UK professional clients only and is not for consumer use. Views and opinions are based on current market conditions and are subject to change. This is marketing material and not financial advice. It is not intended as a recommendation to buy or sell any particular asset class security or strategy. Regulatory requirements that require impartiality of investment or investment strategy recommendations are therefore not applicable, nor are any prohibitions to trade before publication. Issued by Invesco Asset Management Limited, Perpetual Park, Perpetual Park Drive, Henley-on-Thames, Oxfordshire, RG91HH, UK. Authorised and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority.